Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Mark Whitaker to discuss his new book, Saying It Loud, 1966, the year black power challenged the civil rights movement. Mark is the former managing editor of CNN Worldwide, the Washington bureau chief for NBC News, and a reporter and editor of Newsweek, where he rose to become the first African-American leader of a national news weekly. Mark Whitaker, welcome to That Said. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start the interview by asking you to please tell us something about yourself. <laughs> well, I'm a journalist by training. I was uh, spent many years at Newsweek magazine, uh, first as a reporter and a writer, and then eventually uh, an editor. And I was the top editor at Newsweek for almost a decade. And then I was in TV news uh, as an executive, uh, first at NBC and, and running the NBC Bureau in Washington, and then at CNN. And uh, I wrote my first book. It came out in 2011. And uh, since then, I've been doing various things. I'm a sometimes contributor to CBS Sunday Morning Show. I do other things, but uh, ever since then, I've been writing books as well. So why did you decide to write this book? Well, I I enjoy writing history, nonfiction, history, social history. Um, I've written a, a number of different books, but my last book was about the story of uh, the influence of the black community of Pittsburgh in the middle of the 20th century in uh, journalism, sports, jazz, and so forth. August Wilson came out of Pittsburgh. I sort of tied together a lot of threads through the story of this one place. Um, it was a, the larger story was sort of Black America in that period, but told through a specific city. And I found that I really enjoyed that. And it's not something that everybody does. There tends to be a lot of biography and other kinds of, of history. So I was looking for a vehicle to sort of tell the next chapter in the story of Black America, um, which was really during the civil rights era. And as I started to look at that period, you know, so much has been written about Dr. King and, and sort of the earlier great struggles and battlefronts of, of the civil rights movement before 1966. So I first decided that less had been written about the Black Power movement and sort of interested me for a variety of reasons. And then once I started looking at that, I realized that so much happened in terms of that shift, the Black Power sort of shift, uh, in just specifically in the year 1966, that there was a book to be written just about that. And so that's how I came to it. And the title of the book says a lot. It's Saying It Loud, 1966, the year Black Power challenged the civil rights movement. And you write in it that 66 was essentially the birth of this movement. And I think you make the case 
Very well. But I, before we unpack all of the things that happened in 66, I think it's important to look back a second at 65, because there were two things that were very important, one critically important and one sort of as a precursor to what was going to happen in 66. The first is February 65, and that's the murder of Malcolm X. So right. talk a little bit about that, because Malcolm becomes an important conclusion in your book, which we'll talk to at the end of this interview. But tell us a little bit about the February 65. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because because when I decided to write specifically about 1966 and I told people what I was doing, and a lot of people would who didn't remember, you know, the dates and when what happened when would say, "Oh, yeah, Malcolm X." And I, and initially I said, "No, no, no. In fact, he's he's he he was assassinated in 1965, so he's not going to be a major figure in the book." But actually, he turned out to be a huge figure in the book. Why? Because all of the figures I write about in 1966, Stokely Carmichael, who took over the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and who actually sort of put the slogan Black Power on the map. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, who founded the, the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California, uh, in the fall of, of 1966. Uh, Amira Baraka, who was the, then known as Leroy Jones, the poet who was in the vanguard of the Black Arts Movement. All of these figures worshipped uh, Malcolm X, all kind of thought that they were carrying on what he had started. Um, so he was in their heads. Uh, and a lot of the things that they talked about, he had talked about. But it's only sort of clear that, you know, in a way, he was sort of the, the godfather, both in terms of, of how they looked up to him, but also how he was talking about a lot of the things that they then took sort of to the next stage. But it hadn't really gelled into a full-fledged movement uh, while he was still alive. The expression would he was ahead of his time, and yeah. in '66 people begin to operationalize, if you will, what he was talking about in '64, '65. That's true. And then the other thing that's interesting about '66 in regard to Malcolm X is that was the year. So his autobiography, the famous autobiography of Malcolm X, which had such a huge influence, was only published after he died. Um, and the hardcover came out in 1965. But the paperback came out a year later in 1966. And that was, the hardcover sold okay, and it got very strong reviews, but it cost $7.50, which now seems like nothing, but in those days, that was a lot. The paperback edition, which came out a year later, was $1.25. And it was really when the paperback edition came out that that book started to be read you know, uh, by millions of readers. And so his own, even the awareness of Malcolm X and who he was and what he stood for uh, increased dramatically in 1966. Right. So that's February. In March of 65, something else happens, which I consider a sort of a triggering event. And you can tell me if I got it wrong, but the murder of Viola Liuzzo yeah. is, is a March 60. Five event. Uh, can you tell us about her and, and so she what was, so her stage is? Well, she was a white woman. She came from, uh, she was living in Detroit, who uh, answered the call by Dr. King and others for white volunteers and, and supporters of the civil rights movement to come down to assist in the famous Selma to Montgomery march, voting, uh, voting rights march of 1965. 
Um, and after the march was over, everybody, they had reached Montgomery. They had had the big speech where Dr. King talked about the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice and so forth. LBJ had given the speech in, in Washington and in Congress, basically saying that he was going to push forward with the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And she was driving, she had, she had a car and she was had volunteered to drive people who had marched all the way from Selma to Montgomery back to Selma. And while she was doing that, she was ambushed by a group of white men, Klansmen, night Riders, one of whom actually was <laughs> a, a, an informant for the FBI and was shot dead uh, on the road uh, between Selma and Montgomery in the middle of a place called Lowndes County. So um, this, I, I, I mentioned this at the very beginning of the book, partly because that got a huge amount of attention because it was a white woman who got killed. Meanwhile, the thing that got no attention was that at that very moment, Stokely Carmichael and these black uh, SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee volunteers, uh, organizers were going into Lowndes County to take advantage, to start uh, an effort that piggybacked on the Voting Rights Act that was passed in 1965 to not only register uh, black voters in Lowndes County, this very poor place with an overwhelmingly majority black population, but where black, blacks hadn't been allowed to vote in 60 years, not only to register them, but to organize them to form their own new political party. And uh, so that was when Stokely Carmichael later that year in the summer of 1966 started chanting black power that's actually what he was originally talking about, which is it's not enough just to register to vote. We have to organize and form our own voting blocks and flex our voting power. And that's that's that was the original idea of black power. It was a one man, one vote voting registration undertaking that Carmichael and. and yes, it was. It was. But again, the you know, SNCC had been even before 1965 had been that was fundamentally what they were doing in the Deep South was was helping uh, black folks to register to vote. But his point was that just having the right to vote, particularly in a place like Alabama at the time, wasn't sufficient. Why? Because the state of Alabama was controlled in those days, as was Mississippi and others, by segregationist whites, by the Democratic Party, which was, you know, dominant in the South in those days. But particularly in the Deep South, was run and controlled by white segregationists. So even if you have the right to vote, if the only people you have to vote for are white segregationists, you haven't gotten that far, right? So his point is, we'd have to not only register people to vote, we have to take action so that there are actually black candidates for them to uh, vote for. And and the way to do that is to, to form a new political party from scratch, which is what they tried to do in Lowndes County. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But in my mind, I see the evolution of the Black Power movement in multiple steps, which you outline. The first being the murder of Malcolm X, the second being Viola Liuzzo, among other things. And then the third, which you write about as something which 
reverberated through a generation of young people who were reaching a breaking point of frustration with the gospel of nonviolence and racial integration preached by Dr. King. And that's the murder of Sammy Young. Yes. So maybe we could maybe we could talk about that because you spent a big chunk of time in the beginning of the book uh, telling this very compelling story of young Sammy Young and how it was a catalyst for what we're going to see in the rest of right. the Right. So Sam, Sammy Young, it's not a name that most people recognize now, but he was a student at Tuskegee Institute um, in Alabama, uh, had actually grown up in that town, uh, middle class. His father worked uh, at, for the Veterans Hospital. He had actually gone to a white prep school for a while in the Northeast, um, was not until he got to college a particularly political person. He had served in the military briefly. Anyway, so he arrives in 1965 at Tuskegee Institute, and it's just around the time of the Selma March, and he gets involved with the local, with the campus uh, activist group. And he, in the first week of 1966, he had been registering Blacks in that county to vote, he goes to a, a party on campus at the end of the day, and it's just like a social gathering. Uh, at a certain point, they run out of food, um, and so he volunteers because he was middle class and he had a car to drive into town from the campus to get some mayonnaise so they can make tuna sandwiches and to buy some cigarettes for somebody who had run out. He goes into a convenience store at a gas station in the middle of, T of Tuskegee and asks, there's a bathroom inside the convenience store. He asks this elderly gen white gentleman behind the counter if he can use the bathroom. The gentleman says, no, you have to go out back and use the, the bathroom outside. You know, obviously because you're black, right? He doesn't say that, but and so uh, Sammy Young says, "No, I want to use the, the the restroom inside." The man pulls out a gun. <laughs> Sammy then tries to leave. the The clerk pursues him into the street and shoots him dead. And this, it was a big deal because even though you're talking about 1966 and you had had all of these. You would have the Freedom Rides. You would had, you know, the Birmingham campaign. Um, you had had the Edmund Pettus Bridge and people being beaten. But you know, there were a lot of black students on, mostly on on historically black campuses, uh, even in 1965, 1966, who weren't particularly political. You know, and the idea that one of them, a student, just Enrolled, not out on the front lines of protest, but just a student on campus who goes to use, you know, a gas station in town at a place, Tuskegee, which was a pretty, you know, kind of prided itself on being a place where black and white folks got along, um, that this could happen. And then, of course, less than a year later, this man who shot him was acquitted, like, in, a, in 24 hours by an all-way jury, which was typical of those days. Anyway, it really further um, 
the black students, the young black generation that was already involved in civil rights, it made them even more, even angrier and more impatient. And then a lot of other ones who weren't even active in protest, it got them engaged. And, you know, again, their, you know, their criticism of, they had a number of criticisms of Dr. King and the previous sort of generation of civil rights leaders. But one of their objections was, how can we continue to be completely unconditionally nonviolent, even to the point of not even defending ourselves in the face of the kind of violence that persists in the South, in, you know, in, in places like Alabama, but also later that was also the point of the Panthers in Oakland, California. And then the other was that they were a lot more skeptical about the idea that America was ever, that the Dr. King's dream of racial integration was ever really going to happen. You know, they felt like what they had seen, the SNCC organizers had seen in the Deep South and what later, you know, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale saw in a black urban community like Oakland, California, was, you know, white folks, maybe there are some white folks who would, who would be willing to be integrated and live side by side with well-educated middle-class blacks, but they didn't see a lot of evidence that white folks were interested in real integration with sharecroppers, black sharecroppers in the South or, you know, black folks in the inner city of Oakland. And, and you know, honestly, I think they were right about that. <laughs> they were right about that then and they're right about that now. So you've mentioned uh, Stokely Carmichael and Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, but can you just step us back a little bit? That That was... Formed at Howard University, is that right? No, it wasn't. It was actually, it came out of the sit-in movement. Um, so the sit-in movement started in 1960 uh, and 61 um, in North Carolina and in Tennessee. It was students, college students who were going to uh, places like Woolworths and other places where they had these lunch counters that were segregated, where white folks, black folks weren't allowed to sit. And they would just show up and sit down on the counter and just, you know, wait to be arrested or whatever. It was called the sit-in movement. And so after they had been doing that for a while, they were thinking about how to get involved in the organizations, the civil rights organizations. And there was a woman named Ella Baker who was older. I think at this point she was probably in her 50s, maybe even early 60s, who had worked for the NAACP, the National Association of Advancement of Colored People, for uh, Dr. King's uh, organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But she she hosted a retreat of these young people who had been involved in the sit-in movement. And what she told them was, rather than join these older civil rights organizations, you should form your own organization. And that's what they did. And that was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And um, it started with, and so it was, you know, the early volunteers were almost all either still in college or had just gotten out of college. And there were names that later became famous for other reasons, but John Lewis was one of them, Marion Barry, the, later the mayor of, of Washington, D.C., others, Robert Bob Moses, a sort of legendary organizer, and their mission, the thing that they really focused on, was going into 
the rural deep south, places where even Dr. King hadn't really gone. And these places where there were, you know, you know, large black populations, but who had been kept from voting by things like poll taxes and, and literacy tests and so forth and so on, hadn't voted for generations. And before the civil, even after the 1965 and the Voting Rights Act, but certainly before that, that was very dangerous. I mean, people were, you know, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, other people, black folks who tried to actually just register to vote, you know, could be killed or could be tortured or, you know, uh, imprisoned for other reasons. So it was very dangerous work. And that had really been their focus until Stokely Carmichael was elected as the chairman in 1966. And then he, before then there had been, the idea was like, it's not about us. We don't want to call attention to ourselves. We want to work quietly. That was not Stokely's <laughs> uh, way. He loved the limelight. And so as soon as he became chairman, he became a huge media figure. And we'll talk about his replacement of John Lewis as the chairman of, of SNCC. But you told a story uh, a minute ago about SNCC wanting to register voters, but those registered voters would have nobody to vote for. And so they were going to form their own party, which they did, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, the LCFO, uh, which was going to be this party that ultimately would elect sheriffs and other uh, local officials. But tell the story, because it made me smile ear to ear, about how that party, the LCFO, got its secondary name. So they... So Stokely Carmichael had this idea of forming own party. Okay, so then so then they did research. The people at SNCC went through Alabama law books to find out if there was a procedure for starting a new party. And lo and behold, there was. Nobody had taken advantage of this in a long time. But it laid out these guidelines for what you needed to do if you wanted to start a new political party. And one of the requirements was that you had to have an emblem for the party, a visual emblem that could be recognizable by voters who couldn't read, right? Because when this law was written, and certainly even in the 1960s, there were lots of people of both races who were either illiterate or semi-literate. And and so traditionally, this had been an animal, right? And this exists in other places. That's how, you know, we think about the Democrats or donkeys and the Republican Party symbol is the elephant. Anyway. So you had to have an animal symbol. And so they started to do research, what is the animal? And the one they chose was a panther. And then they started drawing in the, at SNCC headquarters in Atlanta. It was all women, a group of women who, they, who came up with the idea of a panther. And then they started the drawing of a panther. And then somebody thought, oh, this would look more interesting if it was inked in it and it was a black panther. Anyway, so that's what they ended up with was their symbol was a Black Panther. And so once they chose that, everybody started calling them the Black Panther Party. So later that year, and so this is in the spring of 1966, in the fall of 1966, Stokely Carmichael goes to give a speech at the University of California, Berkeley. And sort of as marketing for this speech, they bring out these pamphlets that had been created and posters for the campaign in Lowndes County. 
to Berkeley with the Black Panther symbol on it. Huey Newton and Bobby Seale see these pamphlets with this cool Black Panther on it, and they say, oh, that looks great. We're thinking of a name for our own new organization. We're going to call it the Black Panther Party. And so they stole the name. They stole the image. I mean, the image associated with the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which they started in Oakland, was the same thing. But when you think about it, this is all within, you know, six months, you know, six to nine months. That Black Panther created in this tiny little county in Alabama makes it all the way out to Oakland, California, and becomes the name and the symbol for this new Black Panther Party, which is the one we remember today. And we'll talk about them in a minute. But I wanted you to mention something. You said when Carmichael essentially ousts John Lewis as chairman of SNCC, things change. It's to change for Lewis. I remember reading in his biography, he said that he's, his life, his identity, most of his existence was tied up in SNCC, and suddenly he was sort of put out to pasture. So talk yeah, a little bit about that. So John, so John Lewis had been the chairman of SNCC since 1963, since shortly before the March on Washington. He, you know, uh, he was very close to Dr. King. He uh, had become famous in 1965 when he was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and had spent the subsequent year doing a lot of traveling and giving speeches and raising money for SNCC. Anyway, so there is a, in the spring of 1966, SNCC would have these yearly retreats where they would find some place that they could rent cheaply where everybody involved in the organization could assemble to talk about strategy, to do some bonding. And then that's also where they would elect officials for the following year. So in the spring of 1966, they meet in a place called Kingston Springs outside of Nashville in Tennessee. Uh, John Lewis arrives. He's been in Europe giving speeches and raising money at the last minute, jet lagged, tired, gets off a plane, goes there, and expects when they have the vote on leadership to be reelected easily. But it turns out that during the previous year, there had been more and more dissatisfaction with him, partly because people felt like he wasn't around. He was too busy, you know, doing all this travel. But also that he had gotten, he was a little too close to Dr. King. He was spending too much time going to Washington and currying favor with President Johnson. So the more militant members of SNCC didn't like that. So they get around finally on the last day of the retreat to having this vote. He Lewis wins on the first ballot, and he thinks that's it, and he's going to be the chairman for another year. But then a lot of people who had kind of soured a little bit on John Lewis's leadership, rather than vote against him, they had abstained. So somebody, after the first vote was taken, said, actually, that vote wasn't legitimate because not enough people voted. And they demanded another vote with more people voting. So first of all, this is past midnight. They have to get people out of bed, get them back, assembled. And at that point, there's a debate, a really increasingly angry debate, uh, about Lewis and his leadership and the future of SNCC that goes on all night long. Finally, at the crack of dawn, they have another vote, and this time Stokely Carmichael wins the vote and is the new chairman of SNCC. Now, this has all kinds of implications in terms of what happened 
with Stokely Carmichael, which we'll talk about. But for John Lewis, as you said, this was crushing, right? And he, you know, he grew up, he was a, parents were sharecroppers in, in Alabama, very poor. His whole identity had been tied up in first the sit-in movement and then, and then in SNCC. And this being ousted at SNCC kind of, you know, not only was incredibly upsetting, but basically it took him almost two decades to come back from that. Now, we remember him as this sainted congressman who, you know, held his seat in Congress once he was elected in the 80s, you know, until he died and became sort of a national icon. But it took him almost two decades to get back to the point where, you know, he he had, you know, a political role again. So, and then, you know, and then overnight, Stokely Carmichael, who most people had never heard of before then, you know, becomes this huge deal because he's now the head of SNCC. They never really repaired their relationship, I, I believe. No, 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 not, not at all. No, no. And later, <laughs> another, I have a chapter about Julian Bond, who also worked for SNCC, who had run for Congress and made some statements in support of the anti-war movement just as he was about to be seated for the state legislature in Georgia. And one, he was about to be seated. And just on the eve of, of the beginning of the session where he would be seated, a radio interviewer called him up and asked for some comments about a position that SNCC had taken against the Vietnam War. Even though he wasn't involved, he expressed support for it. This became a huge scandal. And the other state legislators in Georgia, voted to deny him his seat. And it this was another very disillusioning thing for this, you know, younger black generation, which was questioning the kind of, you know, whether they should really be playing by the same rules. And, and it took, you know, a, finally, after a year of contesting all of this, the case went to the Supreme Court. He won unanimously. They had to seat him. But then, 20 years later, he ran for Congress, for the U.S. Congress, thinking that he would be unopposed, and John Lewis ran against him. And John Lewis won, and it was a pretty nasty campaign that involved, at a certain point, John Lewis accusing him of being a, using drugs, becoming, you know. Uh, and anyway, so that was another, not only did John Lewis never reconcile with Stokely Carmichael, that race in 1986 ruined the relationship between John Lewis and, and Julian Bond, who had been friends until then. Yeah, well, Julian Bond, who was, I was just going to turn to, but you've made that transition for me perfectly. He was the communications director for SNCC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, that's right. And then, but then, you know, he became, as I said, there was this big story that when after he had run for the state legislature and won this seat, but the point of that also was, so I, you know, in the book I write about, Stokely Carmichael becomes the head of SNCC. He takes it in a more militant direction. He coins the phrase black power. That itself has this huge effect because the press starts, goes crazy and starts covering that, just that phrase. The Panthers, then Huey Newton and Bobby Seale formed the Panthers. There were all these other things. But the other thing that happened in 1966 well, lots of things happen. We'll, we can talk about the backlash and the cultural thing, but yeah. um, part of it, but was 
Well, anyway. Well, okay, I'll help you transition. So we have in our uh, timeline, we've got the murder of Sammy Young on January 3rd, 66. We've got the rising of uh, Stokely Carmichael and the taking over of, of SNCC and moving it in a more black power-oriented direction. We have Julian Bond's legal uh, challenge to the failure to seat him in the state legislature because of his opposition to the war in Vietnam. And all these are galvanizing movements for younger African-Americans who yes, are yes. connected with the civil rights movement. But at the same time that this is happening, so you've got these galvanizing events. Right. You have Dr. King going to Chicago. Right. And that also was meaningful to the younger blacks watching how that uh, unfolded. So can we talk a little bit about Dr. Yeah, King? So, so 1966 is also the year that, that Dr. King decides that he wants to take his, you know, approach to the civil rights movement north to Chicago. I mean, it, everything that he had done until then was basically in the South. He was looking for a place where he could kind of make his mark in the North. He chose Chicago for a variety of reasons. And he also decided that he wasn't just going to focus on just discrimination in public places and, and voting rights, which had been the focus of the civil rights movement until then. He's also going to start talking about jobs and housing. And anyway, so I have two chapters on that in the book. Um, it happens in two phases, the so-called Chicago campaign. But basically, it kind of ends, you know, in disaster, not a, but it, in failure, in the sense that he goes into Chicago he tries to focus on, he has like these peaceful marches to highlight the fact that blacks are being kept in various ways from buying houses in white neighborhoods or even looking at houses in white neighborhoods. And as he marches through these white neighborhoods of Chicago, thousands of white Chicago residents turn up, you know, pelting him with rocks and bottles and racist taunts and so forth. And it just gets really, really ugly. I mean, as ugly as anything he had faced in the South. So at the end of the day, after almost a year of doing this and even renting a, a, an apartment in Chicago and living there part-time, he has to sort of accept this uh, face-saving deal with Mayor Daley, the then mayor, where they're going to, basically, they both agree that they're going to, a commission will be appointed to study the problem of fair housing. But there's no real concrete gain or, or result from all, from this, from a year of protest. Everybody recognizes that it's been sort of humiliating for Dr. King. And this, again, this younger generation is looking at this and saying, see, we told you that the old civil rights tactics, if you took them out of the South and you started talking about other things like housing and jobs, weren't going to work, you know, in the same way that they had worked before. So you have two things going on. You have the, these new organizations and these new leaders who are emerging, but you also have the old leaders and the old approach are facing obstacles and, if not outright defeats, sort of failures that they hadn't had before that. Carmichael says of this right issue, wrong approach, wrong strategy, wrong solution. Yeah, right. And, you know, and, and look, I mean, he wasn't entirely wrong about that. Even Dr. King, I think, kind of, you know, had to acknowledge 
after a year in Chicago that he hadn't accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. And and look, the housing, look, I mean, the, the thing about, so it's really interesting. So when I started writing about this, my, my general impression of the black power leaders were, they were sort of, you know, very, they seemed very sort of glamorous and they were handsome and cool and they had all this great rhetoric, but their ideas were way too, you know, militant, you know, for, for the time, or at least in terms of what what could actually be accomplished. What I discovered was that actually a lot of at least their original ideas and their original analysis wasn't crazy at all. I think the way in which they tried to ultimately implement it, you know, got out of hand and in some ways was self-defeating. But, um, you know, they weren't wrong that conditions in the North were different than conditions in the South and that if you tried to use the same approach that you had used with all of this nonviolent protest in the South, that it wouldn't necessarily work in the North. They weren't wrong about that. When Huey Newton and Bobby Seale formed the, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, their initial, before they started talking about armed revolution and all these things that were never going to happen, their first objective was just to monitor police behavior towards the Black community in Oakland, California. Well, when you think about the headlines that we're still dealing with, you know, over and over again today, almost 60 years later, that wasn't a crazy idea either. That, you know, the idea of civilian patrols that would just keep kind of eyes on the police just to make sure they didn't abuse their authority. I mean, why do we know about some of all these incidents that keep making news now? It's because of cell phones and body cam, you know, police body camera and so forth. Well, none of that existed then. So the initial idea was we're just going to ride around and and stand, you know, at a remove and keep our eye on the police so they know that we're there as witnesses. Now, when they decided that they were going to do this with guns, it got a lot more complicated. Um, but that was the original idea. So let's, while we're on this, let's talk about Bobby Seale and, and Huey Newton. You've said that they derived the name for the Black Panther Party from the Black Panther Party in uh, Louds County, and they they heard Stokely Carmichael's speech before the Students for a Democratic Society at Berkeley, and said, "Hey, he's onto something here," and they begin their own party, the Black Panther Party of Oakland. And you mentioned point seven of their ten point program, but talk about the ten point program that they articulated. Some of those points were not really achievable, but many of them were really uh, forerunners of things that we're seeing today, as you've said. Yeah. So the 10 point program, it's really interesting because they did, you know, they did have a, a real instinct for, you know, sort of marketing and communication. Um, you know, they were part-time community college students in Oakland. They had been involved with the activist groups on campus there but had black activist groups, but it become sort of disillusioned with them. They were run by sort of middle-class black kids who sort of thought of themselves as, you know, very radical, but would just sit around talking all the time. And they felt like, you know, they wanted to do something that would actually benefit people in the neighborhood. And, and so they, they broke away from the activist group on campus. They decided they were going to form their own, organization. And 
at the very beginning, the first thing they did was to write a 10-point program. And, and it's still, you know, that's what they're known for. I mean, most people, when they think about the Panthers, they think about, they remember their berets and their leather jackets and their guns, and they remember the 10-point program. And, um, you know, so some, some of the points, the things they call for in the 10-point program, as you say, were completely, were never going to happen. Like, we want the immediate release of all black prisoners in America. Well, you know, that wasn't going to happen, and there's no way they could make that happen. But... Other things were actually, when you think about what we're still talking about today, they mention reparations, right? And they say black folks were promised 40 acres and a mule after the Civil War, and that never happened. So now we want reparations for that. We want the modern equivalent of 40 acres and a mule. It's really interesting because, you know, that's something, again, I'm not sure that that will ever happen on a national scale, but it's something that's being talked about today. Actually, there are local communities around America now who are actually trying to have their own little kind of small reparations programs. So that was kind of idea was ahead of its time. And then, as you said, the seventh point was this thing I was talking about earlier, which was this idea of monitoring the police. And that was really the thing that once they named the party and they had their 10-point program and they decided that they were going to wear berets and leather jackets, that was the thing that they were actually doing on a day-to-day basis was going around, you know, uh, looking for situations where the police were interacting with people and trying to just stand there and make them, you know, realize that somebody was watching. And what was interesting was that Seal and Newton studied the law in the same way that they looked at how to form a political party. And they realized that in California, it was an open carry state. So they were allowed to carry these weapons as long as they were open carry. And that was... Right, yeah, you're exactly right. So, so basically, Huey Newton, very interesting guy. He struggled with learning disabilities as a child, and he was very bright, but he really didn't really learn how to read until his late teens. And... But once he did, he sort of taught himself how to read, and then he became a big reader. And one of the things he did was he would go to public law libraries and look through the law books, and he discovered that in California at the time, they had, as you said, open carry gun laws, which meant that it was legal to have guns in your possession in public as long as they were visible. And, you know, he said, well you know, we're citizens too. This applies to black folks as well. And so his idea, like this idea of having civilian patrols looking at, you know, monitoring the police, that had been done elsewhere. There were, there was a a black group in uh, Watts in in Los Angeles that had formed that kind of civilian patrol a year before that. And that's probably where they got the idea. But his his wrinkle on it was not only are we going to monitor the police, we're going to be carrying guns while we're doing it. Um, well, once there started to be news stories about these young black men in from the inner city of you know California with their leather jackets and berets carrying rifles and handguns, everybody went crazy and. The Republican-controlled state legislature quickly passed a bill getting rid of the open carry. Uh, Ronald Reagan, who had just been elected, you know, governor of California, uh, weighed in against it. 
But once there were these news stories and photographs of these Panthers in the newspapers around the country, all these young black, you know, men and some women too wanted to be Panthers. <laughs> so people think of people think of the Black Panther Party from that era, starting in 1966, as being a national party because pretty quickly there were Panther movements and chapters around the country. Famously in Chicago, the leader was Fred Hampton, who was later assassinated by the uh, by the police there, other places. But it's not like Bobby Seale and Huey Newton went around and created all those chapters. A lot of them sprang up, you know, spontaneously, just because there were so many people who saw pictures of the Panthers in California, and they wanted to be Panthers. And so if you have, again, on your timeline, if you have... Dr. King's failure in Chicago and this fracturing of the movement with Carmichael taking it in a bit of a different direction. And then the Panthers forming and becoming uh, symbols of self-protection and community protection. It becomes a critical turning point, as you articulate in the book. But something else was going on that I want you to talk about because it gets to this Black Power slogan and that's James Meredith's march. So can you tell us about, we know James Meredith for integrating the University of Mississippi, but tell us about his march against fear, the Meredith march. By 1966, James Meredith, who had, you know, integrated the University of Mississippi, there was a huge riot on the campus when it happened. There were all these, you know, National Guardsmen and police who had to be brought in to, to restore order. Um, he graduates from the University of Mississippi. In 1966, he's in law school in New York. He was a little bit of an eccentric guy. He he decides that he's going to go down in the summer and march by himself across the state of Mississippi to encourage black folks to vote under the new Voting Rights Act. And so he shows up. He starts his march in Memphis across the border, marches into Mississippi. On the second day of his solo march, a white supremacist jumps out from behind some bushes along the highway and shoots him full of bird pellets. Luckily, it was a bird gun and not a real gun because he would not have survived. But he's badly injured. He has to be hospitalized. And when the other major civil rights leaders at the time, Dr. King, uh, Carmichael, but also Roy Wilkins, who was the head of the NACP, all these black leaders, decide that they're going to go down to Mississippi and carry on the march that Meredith began. And so essentially it turns into a sequel to the Selma march of the year before. So the Selma march was in Alabama from Selma to Montgomery. This is going to be a march across Mississippi, over the border from Memphis, all the way to the state capitol in Jackson. And so, and all of the well, initially, all of the civil rights groups major were, were going to be part of it. Then on the eve of this new resume march, they have a, a another, there are all these like wild, angry, uh, night-long meetings in my book. Um, and another one happened at the Lorraine Motel, which we remember is the place in Memphis where Dr. King was assassinated in 1968. All the leaders of the of the big they call them the big five civil rights all get together for a meeting to talk about 
you know, the ground rules for this new march. Uh, and there's a big blow-up, and Stokely Carmichael has this huge fight with Roy Wilkins, who's the head of the NACP. Wilkins and Whitney Young, who was the head of the Urban League, storm out of this meeting and say, we're not going to be part of this Meredith March. So from then on, the Meredith March, it's Dr. King, Stokely Carmichael, the head of, of SNCC, and a guy named Floyd McKissick, who had just taken over as the head of another organization called CORE. And anyway, so they start with, you know, hundreds of marchers marching across Mississippi. At each stop on the way, they register more and more voters, black folks to vote. And in the middle of this, they reach the town of Greenwood, Mississippi. And the Stokely Carmichael, who had worked in Greenwood previously for SNCC, knew the people there, had reached out to the local segregated black school to get permission to put up tents where the marchers could sleep for the night. Even though he had gotten permission, the local police chief shows up with his men and arrests him, says he's trespassing on property, he's not allowed to do this. They arrest Stokely Carmichael. He spends the day in jail, really getting increasingly upset about this. Finally, he's released, and just in time, there's a rally that They've organized, the SNCC organizers have put together on a sandlot baseball field in Greenwood, Mississippi. And they're assembled 500 marchers and local folks, a lot of them young. Uh, They've created a makeshift stage on the back of a truck. Stokely Carmichael gets up on the truck. And until then, one of the chants and slogans of the civil rights movement had been freedom now. Right. And and so a lot of these rallies, they would say, what do we want? Freedom now. What do we want? Call and response with the crowd. Stokely Carmichael gets up and says, we've been talking about freedom and freedom now for too long. Now what we need is black power. And he says, we want black power. And the crowd shouts back, we want black power. And this goes on and on, back and forth. And then he says, what do we want? Black power. What do we want? Black power. Well, this was, you know, 500 people in a little rally in Mississippi. But there was a uh, an Associated Press reporter who was there who filed a story about it. And it was picked up in over 200 newspapers the next day. I counted it because they now have these online archives of newspapers where you can actually chart the number of t- times a story gets picked up by other newspapers. So the next day, people in newspapers around the country are reading about black folks in Mississippi chanting black power. And Stokely Carmichael then gets booked on Face the Nation. They fly him to Washington two days later for the Sunday show, that week's show of Face the Nation on Sunday. They, they start, the, that whole broadcast is asking him, what do you mean by black power? All the major news magazines, my old magazine, Newsweek, Time, they're all writing stories of black, black, black power. So that phrase took off, not only because Stokely Carmichael started using it, but because the press became obsessed by it. And so for the rest of the summer of 1966, there were all of these stories, you know, black power, the new black power generation, what are they talking about? What does it mean? Who is this? You know, and, you know, it was so, and it, you know, so it was, it was a, it was a shift in the, the tone of the, and, 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 you know, and, and, and also Dr. King, 
From then on, every time, everywhere he went, there'd be reporters saying, what do you have to say about black power? What's your response to black power? Um, and so it kind of put him in a position of having to, you know, m- after a decade of leading the civil rights movement, all of a sudden he had to defend everything that he stood for in the face of this new slogan. Right. And and he thought it was an unfortunate slogan because it left the impression of it being a black nationalist movement. Black that- na- violence. And it's interesting because the press portrayed Stokely Carmichael and the black power generation as kind of the, the, the enemies of Dr. King. In fact, on a personal level, Stokely had a lot of respect for Dr. King. He didn't necessarily believe he was challenging some of his ideas and tactics, but he had a lot of respect for the man. And and King himself, you know, had some affection for Stokely Carmichael personally, and also he understood the frustration of this younger generation. But his his objection to black power was that he thought that it would very easily be misinterpreted by the media and by by white folks. And he, he wasn't wrong about that, <laughs> you know, and, and Stokely didn't always do a great job, even when given an, a, a very open-ended opportunity to explain to people what he meant by black power. He, he often, rather than take that opportunity, he said something provocative, which may have been very funny and provocative, but didn't really help educate the white population or the media. No, and in fact, you're right that it resulted in changing white attitudes. And if you looked at racial attitudes from 63 to 66, you get from pollsters like they, the quote-unquote Negroes, as the survey would indicate, are demanding too much, too fast, and that there's a white backlash that actually you articulate results in the elections of Ronald Reagan, Richard Nixon, and the political backlash to black power happens very, very swiftly. It really revives the Republican Party two years after 1964, where Barry Goldwater had lost this historic, you know, historic landslide to, uh, to President Johnson. So it's really 66, in a way, is a turning point just in American politics in terms of sort of the comeback of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And, um, uh, yes, so, and also there are, there's all this polling data from, from Newsweek in particular, which was doing very good polling on racial attitudes at the time. You would think that after the passage of the Civil Rights Movement, Civil Rights Bill of 1964 and the Voting Rights Bill of 1965, that racial attitudes and there would be more agreement on issues of race between black folks and white folks in 1966 than there had been in 1963. But in fact, it got worse. White people were less supportive of civil rights and black folks were more impatient. And all of that was reflected in, in the polling that year as well. And more horribly, in J. Edgar Hoover and the COINTELPRO program, you talked about the murder of Fred Hampton, anyone who can go watch the movie, The Black Messiah, you'll see this is an aftermath of what happens in 66. Yeah, so J. Edgar Hoover, who had had, uh, you know, surveillance and dirty tricks, operation directed at Dr. King and at Malcolm X, 
So it didn't start in 1966, but again, partly supported by, or at least with a sense that, you know, that he had more public support for it in 1966 and going into 1967, launches this even more aggressive um, counterintelligence program, COINTELPRO, as it was called, directed against all of the black organizations. So, and then as SNCC's influence started to wane quite quickly after 1966, he really, the FBI goes uh, very aggressively after the Panthers. And there are over, uh, well over 200 uh, covert operation uh, programs directed just at the Panthers to, you know, sow divisions between them. And, and so, you know, the Panthers, there was a lot of infighting ultimately between Huey Newton and Bobby Seale and Eldridge Cleaver once he joined the Panthers uh, in early 1967. You know, they all ended up, all the initial leaders ended up in prison or in exile, and the women in the Panthers basically had to take over uh, day-to-day control of the operation. Um, So there were some self-inflicted wounds there, as it were, but, but a lot of it, they were just up against you know, a really, really nasty program of subversion by the FBI. I want to turn to sort of the last topic, and then I think we have to let you go. Mark Twain said it's a terrible death to be talked to death, and I want you to stick around for many, many more decades to keep writing. But one of the real positive aspects of 1966, which you write about, was the rise of black consciousness. So can you talk about that? So this is the cultural side. And ultimately, as you say, and I, I really end the book before the epilogue where I talk about some of the, you know, unraveling that happened after that and and then revival. I mean, there's there was a, an unraveling of black power that happened in the 70s and then in some ways a revival of the spirit of black power in the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, that continues to this day. But but in addition to all this political stuff that was going on, 1966 was also the year of this kind of what was then called, you know, this flowering of black consciousness. And it was reflected in everything from what was called the black arts movement, which was, you know, poets, playwrights, you know, uh, eventually August Wilson, the great playwright, all sort of focusing much more on writing about Black life and Black issues, and, you know, there was a shift even in in Black music and in jazz and so forth. But also, you know, it was a year that a lot of Blacks started to say, we don't want to be called Negroes anymore, when they decided they wanted to stop straightening their hair, and the Afro became popular, when they started uh, wearing more Afrocentric dress, daishikis and so forth. The push for the first Black Studies program on a white campus started in 1966 at San Francisco State. And and really kind of what it was, I, I had this really moving interview with a former colleague of mine from Newsweek, Vern Smith, who had grown up in Natchez, Mississippi in the Deep South, was a student at San Francisco State in 1966. And so he was right there as all this was happening. And he described it as a born-again experience that all young black generation, which had grown up kind of having all of these negative stereotypes 
of what it was to be black and Negro and so forth foisted upon them. In many cases, even internalizing a lot of that, thinking that the only way that they could kind of, you know, make it in white society was by emulating white folks, straightening their hair, dressing like white, you know, having social clubs and so forth that kind of, you know, copied white society. And all of a sudden they think, no, we can have our own culture. We can be proud of the way we look and the way we dress and what our history was. And we can kind of be proudly black in a new way. And this is where the whole saying it loud, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, people think of that and they think of the James Brown song, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. Well, he actually, that song came out two years later, but as Vern Smith said to me, he was actually just reflecting a change in mood in the black community that had started two years earlier in 1966. But to me, you know, you can argue about how we're still living with the political, the, a lot of the political battles of black power are still being fought. And every time there seems to be progress, there's backlash, just as there was in 1966. But the cultural impact, I think, has been in some ways even more lasting and enduring. And Anyway, so what Vern said to me, he said, is like, we felt like we were being born again. We were no longer Negroes. And, you know, that to me was very profound and moving. You know, he said, you know, young people today, they call themselves black. They call themselves African-American. You know, they listen to their music and they dress, you know, and they so forth. And like, they take it for granted. But he said, you know, all of that really only started with Black Consciousness in 1966. It's a great book. Its title, again, is Saying It Loud, 1966, The Year Black Power Challenged the Civil Rights Movement. Mark Whitaker, thank you so much for appearing with me today and for writing this wonderful book. And I'm hoping that people will buy it. We didn't do a spoiler of what happened to uh, many of these great people because we want you listening audience to go buy this book because it's actually timeless. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.